Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Our teaching text this morning is taken from Luke chapter 24, and it is this. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, called Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and other rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe. All that the prophets have spoken, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? Good morning. Good morning. It is great to see you. My name's Stu. If we haven't met before, one of the pastors here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. And we are in week two of our Back to Basics series. In February, we taught into four key practices for us as the church as we reorder our lives around the life of Jesus and the demonstration of his kingdom. And those four practices were prayer, worship, Bible and people. And this month, we're wanting to return back to that series, return back to those patterns and pick up from where we left off. And a few months ago, Andy taught on the value of the scriptures and the importance of weaving it into the rhythm of our everyday lives. And he taught us that the scriptures lead us in two particular ways. Firstly, they anchor us in an age that is full of flux, where there's so much swirling around us in culture. There's so many questions. The Bible helps navigate us with what is actually 
actually going on in the world, but also the Bible allows us every single, every single time we open it to experience the close and intimate presence of Jesus and allow his voice to speak directly into our lives. So I want to pick up this morning from where Andy left off, but I can't believe I haven't said this yet. Happy birthday, everybody. Tumbleweed. Cool. Um, so um, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's, uh, is it actually anybody's proper birthday today? No? Awesome. Cool. So it's all of our birthdays today. So today is Pentecost Sunday. It is the moment that we get to celebrate that the promised and powerful Holy Spirit fell upon this random band of disciples who've been following Jesus, filling them with his authority to continue his mission on earth. Pentecost awakened the church to demonstrate the miraculous, to turn cities upside down, and to spread the good news of the king and his kingdom all across the world. At the end of our gathering today, we're going to join with brothers and sisters all across the world in praying and marking Pentecost, and also praying that we would sense and be awakened to the fresh wind of God's spirit once again. But I want you this morning to notice the kind of community that Pentecost formed. So if you've got a Bible with you, there's some in your seat. Can I um, get you to turn to Acts chapter 2 with me? That would be great. So Acts chapter 2, just after the Gospels in the New Testament, towards the end of the book, Acts chapter 2 says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house from where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was a bunch of people who had come from all across the world and they were witnessing this event take place and they had no framework for what was happening. So they were basically saying, those guys are completely wrote off. And Peter is then gets up and says, they're not drunk, honestly. It's nine o'clock in the morning to which he heard back from somebody, but surely it's lunchtime somewhere, right? And then he says, no, no, that's not what's going on here. He says that this is what happened. This is what is going on is promised by the prophet Joel who says this, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'm going to pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter then goes on to deliver a remarkable sermon where he basically preaches on how Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God. And then he basically leads 3,000 people to come to know Jesus in one day. It is amazing. But I want you to notice after this flurry of activity on Pentecost, verse 42, this is what happens in the heart of this community. These words will be very familiar to you. Verse 42 of chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled in awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all of the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We love the book of Acts here. It's an incredible story. Stories of the miraculous, stories of demonstrations of power. 
But I want you to notice that this kind of community wasn't just daring and dangerous. They were also devoted. In Acts, we of course see the power of God, but we also see the patterned life of discipleship. There were these rhythms, these habits of personal devotion and obedience worked out in community that created the space for the early church to occupy with signs and wonders and mission. So often, we can get caught up in the kind of immature thinking of trying to pitch different elements of the God-shaped life against each other, that either we're people who are all about the miraculous or people who are all about the devotional rhythms like prayer and scripture, when in fact, the shape of our life, the shape of the church is to be found in the tension, not in the binary, but in the radical middle, in the both and in the paradox of being both a daring and a devoted community, of being a community marked by pattern and by power. The more we devote ourselves to the patterns of formation, the more that we will see the transformation of this region. It's how this thing works. The more that we invest in the texture of our interior worlds, the more that we're going to see the fabric of this place come alive with the power of the kingdom. The shape of the church and the shape of our lives is to be both devoted and daring. And today, I want to teach you into one of the most foundational, basic practices of the church, which is devoting ourselves to this text, the Bible. Because as we devote ourselves to it, it will help shape us and form us into a daring, empowered, Pentecost kind of people. But what do I mean whenever I talk about devotion? Of all the people in this planet, there is one person that I am most devoted to. It's, of course, Emma. I let a lot of people speak into my life. I read widely. I listen to a lot of voices. But there is one voice that consistently has my attention, my devotion, it's, of course, Emma's. She is the one person who's able to speak most accurately into what is going on with me. She's sensitive to how I feel. She knows me. She is the person that I go to to hear her thoughts, to hear her wisdom, to gain her insight. And she also has the authority to be able to speak into my life and to guide me through it. She is the person that I have the biggest conversations with and also the most ordinary, how was your day, love kind of conversations. Of all of the voices in the world, hers is the voice that I'm listening out for the most. I am devoted to her voice. Her voice speaks louder than anybody else. The great martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says this. It's going to appear on the screen. The word of scripture should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long just like the voice of someone that you love. And just as you don't analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they were said to you, accept the word of scripture, then ponder this word long in your heart until it has gone right into you and taken possession of you. We are to be a devoted people, devoting ourselves to Jesus and allowing his word, his scriptures, his story to be the loudest voice that we hear. We are to immerse ourselves in the text allowing it to take possession of us, his story becoming our story. That is devotion to the scriptures. Yet, the truth is that devoting ourselves to the scriptures, it really doesn't come easy. 
A few months back, I spoke on daily devotion to Jesus through prayer and the Bible, and we asked you to let us know how you were getting on. And whenever it comes to prayer, you are doing amazing. It is brilliant. It is so encouraging. 76% of you pray at least once a day. It is amazing. Thank you for that. But whenever it comes to reading the Bible daily, it's a bit more of a struggle. You've been honest with us. 28.35% of you read your Bible once a day, which is great, and I would encourage you to keep doing that. But there's 21% of you who hardly read the Bible at all. We want more of you to read your Bible every day. And here's the thing, we don't want you to do it for us, or we don't want you to do it for the sake of percentage numbers to increase. We don't want to guilt you, because if you do that, you'll only do it for performance sake, and then it'll just peter out, and it will kind of fall flat. But here's the thing. This stat of only 28% of you reading your Bible once a day, it is honestly the stat that keeps me up at night off the back of the metric series. Because for some of you, and let me be really honest this morning, some of you are missing out on a dynamic life of faith because you've set this book down and you've allowed the voices of other people and other stories to drown out the voice of the Father in your life. Your faith, maybe, in this moment, feels like dying embers on a fire. But maybe, this morning even, on Pentecost Sunday of all days, through the voice of God speaking to you through his sacred scriptures, and also through his own spirit, which always go hand in hand, word and spirit, by the way. God may be able to set your faith on fire once again. I long for us to be the kind of community who becomes so fluent in the language of the scriptures that we begin to dream in it. That this book, that would shape our imaginations of what is possible, but would also become a guide for us in everyday life. Andy mentioned a few weeks ago that we're doing some work behind the scenes at the minute to try to help us all as a community to engage with the Bible well. We're going to be taking our time to do that because it's so important and we don't want to rush it. But in the meantime, this morning, I want to speak to two groups of people. Firstly, those of you who are new to faith, you're checking this stuff out, you maybe heard about the Bible and you're hearing it maybe for one of the first times. I want to speak to you this morning, but I also want to speak to you if you really struggle with the scriptures, if it feels a bit dry at the minute and you're struggling to engage with it. And this morning as I teach, I want to humbly point you in the direction of a life that's immersed in the scriptures. I'm really aware that this can be hard. And there's four things that I hear quite often as I talk with people about the Bible, four things that hold us back from a life devoted to the Scripture that are going to appear on the screen. Firstly, it doesn't actually relate to my life, does it? Secondly, I don't understand it. I don't know what on earth is going on with the Bible. Thirdly, I don't really get why reading the Bible is important. There's lots of stuff going on. I'm a busy person. Why is reading the Bible important? And third, oh, sorry, fourthly, where do I even begin? Where do I start? If I want to engage with this, if I want to read it, how do I get started? These are real questions. And I'm sure even as you scan through those, they may ring true for some of you this morning. And so with that, I want to teach into the value of this text and hopefully answer some of the questions that you may be asking. Is that cool this morning? You with me this morning? Yeah? I got a few nods. Awesome. Great. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 24. And if you want to flick back, it's the same author of Acts. Flick back a wee bit 
to Luke chapter 24. It's the teaching text that Yvette read out earlier. And this is an account from Resurrection Sunday, so Luke 24. I want you to keep this text open as I work through this next little bit of the talk. It's Resurrection Sunday, verse 13. But the two disciples, they don't really know that yet. They're walking towards a mess, and they find themselves on a road that's really familiar to us. It's a road that we're walking all of the time. On one side of the road, they're possessing, or sorry, processing all that's happened over the course of the past 48 hours. They're full of questions, they're full of frustrations, full of sadness, full of hurt. Life has truly hit them as they witness their hero dying on a cross. But on the other hand, on the other side of the road, they've just heard reports from the tomb that actually Jesus is not in there and he could be alive. They're walking a road that is really familiar to us. On one side, it has the tension and the challenges and the difficulties of life. And yet on the other side of the road, there is the presence of miraculous hope. And as they walk, Jesus catches up with them and he asks them, what are they chatting about? But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't just simply reveal himself instantly saying, hey, fellas, it's me. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 25 says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And this is the thing. And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. In the midst of the questions and the fears and the difficulties, Jesus opens up the story of the scriptures. He opens the Bible with these disciples. And he gives them a fresh perspective of what was actually going on with them in that moment, but what was actually going on in the world. He allowed the scriptures to speak directly into their lives. Whenever it comes to practicing the way of Jesus, learning to live his life by tangibly doing exactly the same things he did, we can get tripped up by simplifying and by stereotyping the Christian life. We remember the good old days of our faith, days that were full of energy, full of passion, the days whenever it was really easy to read the Bible, to pray all the time, to take lots of risks, the days whenever it felt easy and good to follow Jesus, but then life hits, right? Storms come. And because we don't feel like we did in the golden days, we struggle to engage in the same practices. We struggle to engage with the Bible and prayer and worship, engaging with people in the same way. Our feelings get knocked around a little bit. And because we don't feel like we once did, we sometimes struggle to practice the way of Jesus. Or is that just me? The season changes for us. And we end up longing for the feelings of the good old days rather than seeing that every step on the road is an arrival and is a doorway to experience a fuller, more intimate, more mature relationship with Jesus Christ himself. We find ourselves all the time trying to brush the hurts, the disappointments, the wounds, the questions under the carpet and just try to live like we did in the golden days. But this leads us to practice the way of Jesus in two ways, by feasting or by living through famine. We sometimes just have this flurry of activity and so we feast on what is going on, but it doesn't last any distance And so we just find ourselves in these long periods of famine, these desert lands, these bad lands, where we're just simply just wandering and longing for the past. Where there's only feast or famine, 
there's no consistent pattern, no consistent rhythm of following after Jesus. There's no pattern of engaging with the scriptures. The Bible, which was always meant to be read on the road, the road of your actual life, not just for the moments whenever it feels good or easy to be following Jesus. With all of the experiences and all of the emotions that the disciples were working through in that moment, Jesus chose to open up the Bible with them, open up the scriptures with them, and speak directly into what was going on with them. Here is the thing. This ancient book, it speaks right into the heart of the human experience. Every human experience. This isn't a book just full of nice little one-liners to make us feel happier, or a book that's only for the golden days, but this text, it speaks right into the context of our everyday lives, and it gives us a framework for what is actually going on with us, and all the while allows us to encounter the sweet and intimate presence of Jesus. The Bible is to be opened up on the road, and with every step, it invites us into a more mature, more real, intimate relationship with Jesus. We get to read in this book both sides of the road, both the hardship and the hope. That's why we have stories of the miraculous, stories of lives being turned around, calls to worship, calls to live a life full of joy, things that stir us towards adoration and life and fun and friendship. And yet there's also flipping lamentations, like why is it in there? There's Ecclesiastes with Quallette looking at everything and saying everything is vapor. There's Christ's tears as he weeps at the graveside of Lazarus and over the city of Jerusalem that he loves. And then there's the Psalms. A few years ago, I was walking a similar road to the disciples, an Emmaus Road kind of experience. I'd given everything to follow Christ. I'd been serving him, but things hadn't quite worked out the way that I expected. And I was disappointed. I was confused. I was full of questions. And yet along the road, I saw the counsel of a good friend. And he encouraged me, do one thing. Read a psalm a day. And so I began to, I was kind of hoping for a solution, but I ended up with the psalms. Kind of funny how things work out. And I opened up the Psalms and I just started reading one a day. I still haven't stopped. I did it again this morning. The words of the Psalms, they put language to exactly how I was feeling. I was confused. I felt lost. Yet I was still hopeful. And it surprised me just how honest the Psalms were, how gritty and real and tangible it was. It felt like the Word had incarnated itself into my life. The Psalms gently guided me from a hard road to a place that was full of hope. It started off with Psalm 44. Why do you sleep, O Lord? And then led me to Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. It took me to Psalm 131. I do not occupy with myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and I've quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. It took me to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then there was the pivot moment, Psalm 31. But I trust in you, Lord, for you are my God. 
It led me to Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all of the days of my life. And led me finally to a place of new perspective. My life verse, Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Why do I say this this morning? This book, it is holistic, kaleidoscopic. It is rich and it speaks right to the heart of the human experience. Every human experience. It isn't just a guidebook for the happy places, but it is a guidebook for all of life, for the road. And as the disciples on Resurrection Sunday went back and they broke bread and Jesus just vanished. I've like talked to Andy about that one. Like I've got no real framework for that. They recognized that it was Jesus that was walking with them all along the road. Verse 32, it says this, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us in the road, and he opened up the scriptures with us? Whatever season of life that you find yourself in, whatever is going on, can I really encourage you? Stop simplifying. Stop stereotyping the Christian life. Quit trying to live into the feelings of the golden age, but instead open up this book. Open up this text and allow it to speak deeply into your life. And all the while, as you open it page by page, I promise you, you will encounter the presence of Jesus. Question one, does the Bible even relate to my life? Yes, it absolutely does. And to help you with this as you go home today, our good friends at the Bible Society have produced this really helpful flyer. Some of them are sitting on your seat. Really encourage you to take them home with you. It'll show you that whether you're on one side of the road, whether you're dealing with hardship or you're dealing on the other side with hope and things are going really, really well, that the Bible speaks right into the context of your lives. So take this home, have a flick through it, open up the scriptures and begin to see just how relatable the Bible is to you. All right. So the Bible, okay, it relates to my life. I get that, Stu. But I got to be honest, I don't really understand it. I don't really get it, and I'm right there with you. Sometimes the Bible is not an easy read. It's an ancient text. There's lots of different kinds of writing going on. It's in a funny order, and there's just some flipping weird stories in it, right? So the Bible can be a little bit of a tough read at times. And that's why it's really unhelpful for us just to like say to you, like, go and read your Bibles today, because that just won't really work. So let me help you this morning. Help us in terms of your understanding of what the Bible is by answering a really obvious question, which is this. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Whenever we look at the Bible, we see the activity of God from beginning to unending conclusion, and we see that it takes the form of a story, a narrative. The best definition I've been able to work out is this. It's going to appear on the screen. That the Bible is a unified and progressively unfolding drama of God's action in history for the renewal of the whole world. When was the last time that you went to the theater? And I know what you're thinking. Last time I was at the theater was at the Panto. Does that count? Like we all want to be more cultured than we actually are. I get it. I'm with you. So even at the Panto, you'll remember that there, a play or a drama was, is made up of a number of acts, different sections of the play, different parts of the story. And it's exactly the same with the Bible. The Bible is the story, the play of God, which explains what is truly going on in the world. And it's made up of six different acts. 
And as we see the whole story, just like Jesus shared with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it gives us a framework for what is actually going on. So if you're new to the scriptures, this will be really helpful for you as you begin to see that this is the framework of what is going on in the Bible. So firstly, it kicks off Act 1 with creation. The stage is set, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God, or Elohim, plural, the community of the Trinity, they created the heavens and the earth. And in Act 1, with the creation of all things that we get to enjoy, there are two big themes. Firstly, creation is really, really, really good. And secondly, God desires to dwell with his people. And these are two themes that are going to keep recurring right the way throughout the story of God. Act 2, fall. Major part of any good story is a conflict. Something that goes wrong that needs to be fixed. Everything was perfect, but then humanity falls into sin. And Genesis 2 verse 17 says that the punishment for sinning or eating the fruit in the garden was death. So this should have been the end of the story. We get to kind of the start of Act 2, and the story should have ended But even in the darkest and most difficult act of humanity's story, we see God pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden, who aren't dead, they were alive. Even in fall, we see resurrection taking place. God also sees the shame of Adam and Eve, and with that, he sacrifices an animal to cover their nakedness and to cover their shame. Even in the second act, we see pursuit, we see redemption, and we also find resurrection. Third act, Israel. This takes us from Abraham to the birth of Jesus, and there is so much that happens here. But it is ultimately the story of one community, one family, the family of Israel, who through wandering, through battles, through exodus, through the miraculous, through exiles, through prophets and kings, they seek and they struggle to follow the ways of God, and yet throughout it all, God remains consistent. And there's two key parts to this act which are really important. Firstly, Israel are encouraged all of the time to keep returning back to one story, and it's the story of Exodus. Every year they celebrate Passover. Around festivals, they keep returning back to the story. Grandparents telling it to their grandchildren, consistently returning back to the story of Exodus. But there's also another thing that happens here, and it is the longing, the longing and desire for a true and better deliverer than Moses to come, a Messiah who would be able to free the entirety of humanity from the slavery of sin and shame and death. And so with that, we find the fourth act, Jesus himself, God coming amongst us, establishing his kingdom. Our storytellers speak of something that is known as the gleaming detail. It's the moment whenever everything falls into, the, into place. It's the moment whenever you're able to sit back and say, oh yes, this is what the story is all about. And the gleaming detail in the story of God takes place over one weekend with a death, a burial, and also a resurrection that changed everything. It is a moment in which we get to see the full story come together as one, where we get to see the Father, just like he had been since Act 2, moving in loving pursuit, seeking to redeem and to make right the distortion of the garden, 
And what was required was a deliverer, somebody like Moses in Act 3, but somebody else was needed, a liberator who would be able to redeem the entirety of humanity. What was needed was a sacrifice, just like we find in the garden, a lamb who was able to cover both the sin and the shame of the people. And what was needed was one who was able to defeat death, a moment of resurrection. In the center of our story, we have the gleaming detail We get to look upon him, the liberator, the shame breaker, the Messiah, God himself, the main actor in our story, Jesus. And the story continues. We look ahead to the sixth act, the unending conclusion of our story, where with all things made new, we will be able to live forever in a city that is going to feel like Eden in act one. The story will go full circle. The first two chapters and the last two chapters of this book frame everything, where we get to look ahead to a city with the goodness of new creation to be enjoyed forever, and where God, just like he desired from the beginning in act one, will dwell with his people forever. We as the church look ahead, but we find ourselves in this really interesting place, the fifth act, an act which began on Pentecost, by the way, happy birthday, everybody, the same spirit that was hovering over the waters of the deep before even act one began, empowers us as the church to continue the mission of Jesus from act four as we aim towards act six. This is what is going on in the Bible. This is the story of God. But it is also the story of our world. This is what is actually taking place underneath the surface with everybody and everything on this planet. And with that, it's really important for you to get this and to understand it. We as the church are living in the fifth act We aren't simply just to sit back and enjoy this story, like sit in the stalls and just kind of watch it happen. We have been invited onto the stage of God's play, and we are to act in it. The question is, how are we supposed to act in this place, the fifth act? Um, A few years ago, Emma and I were in Rome, and one night we were getting a taxi back to our hotel, and we just got chatting to the taxi driver and found out that taxiing was just kind of his side hustle. And I asked him what he was up to, and he said that he was a runner on movies, kind of the guy that runs around trying to fix everything and make sure everything is sorted. And so we just started having this conversation with him. He had just finished working on Lincoln, the Steven Spielberg movie with Daniel Day-Lewis in it. Now, I am such a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan. Like, he, like, he's like Pacino, isn't he? He's like Brando. He's like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He is just an incredible actor. Like, he is just up there with the best, right? So I got really excited whenever I was talking to him about Daniel Day-Lewis. So I asked him, what was it like working with him? And he said it was awful. Daniel Day-Lewis, which kind of disappointed me, Daniel Day-Lewis, if you don't know, is a proper old school method actor. Like he just assumes the role. And even whenever cut is shouted, he keeps on going acting, just making sure that he's able to get the nuance of the character and be able to live into it fully. So Daniel Day-Lewis, dressed as Abe Lincoln, would be going for coffee and shouting at people because Abraham Lincoln, he wasn't a great guy to be around most of the time. So like um, Daniel Day-Lewis would be so immersed in the script in the language and the story of Lincoln, he would embody the role fully so that he'd be able to continue the story wherever he went. 
We are to act just like that. Just be nicer than Daniel Day-Lewis, please. We are to act in the same way. This story is continuing through us. And so we too need to live like method actors. We need to immerse ourselves in our story and in our script. We have to become so familiar with it. We've got to pull the threads from Act 1 and 4 right the way through to Act 6, pull it together into this moment, develop a biblical imagination so that into this space, we are to be people who are so familiar with the story of God that into the blank space that is in front of us, into this city and into this region, into your school, into your workplace, into your home. We're to be people who step into character and see the God story come alive amongst us. We're to be people who have rehearsed this story so much, been immersed in it, that we can courageously embody it today. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. This will appear on the screen. Stories are the most prominent biblical way of helping us see ourselves in the God story, which always gets around to the story of God making us and saving us. Stories, in contrast to abstract statements of truth or belief systems or doctrine, they tease us into becoming participants in what is being said. We find ourselves involved in the action. We may start as spectators or as critics, but if the story is good, and I love this, and the biblical story is very good, we find ourselves no longer just listening to, but inhabiting the story. For the story of God, the drama of his redemption to come alive today, it is our responsibility as the church to act well, to rehearse, to get to know our lines a little bit better and to immerse ourselves in this story. And this is why the daily practice of reading the scriptures is so important. Somebody has said that the universe is made up of stories, not of atoms. Everyone and everything is trying to tell us a story. We are bombarded by them. They're all drawing us in, inviting us to immerse ourselves in them, and then they go on and invite us in to be able to go and share that same story with other people. We are surrounded by the noise of other people's stories. There's stories that are really obvious to us, right? There's the TV shows that we watch, the films that we're watching, the books that we're reading, but there's also less obvious stories that we can find ourselves immersed in all the time. The newspaper that we read, the political party that we support, the Instagram influencer that we follow, the Facebook post, the social commentator that everybody is talking about, the family that we're from, the conversation about the family that's down the road and what they're up to, the place that we live, our insecurities, somebody else's insecurities, ambitions, longings, they all speak of a story. And it's really helpful maybe just to give you this grid. Whenever it comes to stories, there's always a hero, there's always a villain, there's always something that has gone wrong, and there's a way to fix it. It's really difficult to do that fourth kind of finger there. But that's what's going on with stories. And place anything into that, you know, the newspaper that you read. I sometimes read The Guardian, and I've got to be really mindful that it's also trying to tell me a particular story. That actually there is a certain hero, which is kind of lefties. And then there's a particular villain, which is people here obviously from the other side that there's something that's gone wrong and there's something that needs to be fixed about it. It's exactly the same if you go the other side and you read the Daily Mail, or I was going to say, if you read the Sun, please don't read the Sun. So it, take that grid, that there's something that's going on. It's exactly the same with the social commentator that everybody's talking about. 
or the Instagram influencer that is sharing literal stories and trying to get you to buy in and also for you to follow them and to become more like them. Everybody is trying to tell you a story, capture you in it, and then send you out to share that exact same story. Another helpful way, if you were around a few weeks ago at Jericho, to describe this is the word principalities, nameless or even faceless things sometimes that are trying to draw us into their story and to lead us out. Here is the question that I'm getting to. What stories are you immersing yourselves in? Which stories have your attention? Which stories are you devoted to every single day? And that might sound like a lofty, abstract question, but it's not. At 9 o'clock this morning, as I came into this building, I got a notification from my phone telling me the average screen time for my week. Some of you may have got that this morning too. This is a tangible question. Look at your schedules. Look at the conversations that you're having. Listen out to yourself, and you'll be able to see what stories you're immersing yourselves in. It works itself out in the time that you devote yourself to it. Whatever it is, you're turning up the volume of that particular story's voice. You're giving it authority. You're giving it allegiance. And you're allowing it to shape you, whether you realize it or not. The Bible, it speaks of the truest story of this world. Of what is truly going on. And in the daily committed practice of opening up this text, we get the opportunity to break rank, to be subversive in the midst of this busy, noisy culture. And we get to place authority and allegiance once again in the hands of the Father and say, yours is the voice that I long to hear so much more than anybody or anyone else's. We get to be able to say to God, I want to listen to your voice more than any other. I'm devoting myself to you. And even though we may not get a ton out of it all of the time as we read through genealogies or flipping lamentations, we get to, the moment to choose, to choose to immerse ourselves in this text, to be shaped by it, and to live in such a way that we embody it and share it with the world. Some of you find yourself in a tailspin right now particularly around your identity and around your purpose, who you are and what you're supposed to do with your life. And you find yourself being spun by other people's stories, other people's narratives. People are trying to grab your attention everywhere you look. They are shaping you and they are forming you. If only you would step back and set down the phone for a moment and pick up the scriptures and listen to the voice of the Father and see what is actually going on in the world. What story are you immersing yourself in? And honestly, how is that going for you? And with that, can I humbly encourage you this morning to begin to immerse yourself in this text. Finally, last thing, real quick. How do we do this? Where do I even begin? As I said before, we're doing some work in the office around this. We're not going to rush it. But in the meantime, wherever you are on the road, can I encourage you to read a psalm every single day, to begin to build this practice into your rhythm of life. But with that, over the next fortnight or maybe to the end of June, here are three helpful options, potentially, if you're struggling to engage in the scriptures and trying to work out how do I get into this, three options for you. If you're new to faith, if you're discovering Jesus, 
you're checking out church, can I really encourage you to open up the gospel of Matthew to look at the teachings of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom and see the exciting and dynamic life that we've been invited into. If you're trying to recover your devotion, if you've struggled with the Bible and trying to get back into it, I'm going to dare you, get into the Old Testament and particularly the book of Exodus. And as you open it up and journey through this amazing story, look for the hints of what is going to happen as Jesus comes and makes himself known in the world. And finally, if you're wanting to work out how do the scriptures actually integrate with my everyday life, can I really encourage you to open up the book of James? which speaks directly into normal, everyday life and what it looks like for us to follow Jesus really, really well in it. And all the while, two really helpful things that I find. Firstly, is before you get started, like we do every single Sunday whenever we get up towards the end of worship and begin the teaching text, we say three words, come Holy Spirit. Just sit in a comfortable seat and just open up the scriptures and just say those three words, wait for a moment and then dive in as you open yourself up to hear from God himself. Read the text, take your time. You don't need to read lots of it, even if it is just a couple of verses, just read the text. Some people find it helpful to journal a little bit, whatever suits you. But then off the back of it, ask yourself two really helpful questions. One, God, what are you saying to me right now? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? I'm really aware that for many of you, you're asking yourself four questions. How does the Bible relate to my life? I don't really get it. I don't understand it. Why is reading the Bible important in the midst of my busy life? And fourthly, where do I even begin? Can I, this morning, really encourage you to consider that there is a text that is to be read on the road of life? that allows you to see what is truly going on. A text that opens you up to the presence of Jesus. This book is our script. It is our story. So church, immerse yourself in it. Devote yourself to it. Listen to the voice of the Father and allow him to shape the texture of your interior world, but also the very fabric of this community that we love. Let's stand together as I come to close. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Happy birthday again, everybody. And it wouldn't be right for us just to leave without taking a moment to mark Pentecost and also to pray together. We long to be the kind of community that is both daring and also devoted. And that does require God's promised and powerful Holy Spirit. So I'm going to and pray in just a few moments. And I'm also going to invite you to pray along with me. But before I do that, let's just take a moment to open up the Bible real quick. Now, I want to invite you just to close your eyes and just to begin to imagine that you are in a room, a sweaty, warm room with a bunch of your brothers and sisters. You've been told to wait. You've been told to hang on for a bit. You've seen Jesus ascend into glory. And then this happens. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one voice. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Here's the thing. As it was for them, so it is for us today. Their Pentecost is our Pentecost too. But today... We as the church long to experience the fresh wind of God's Holy Spirit, the weight of his presence, the thickness of his presence. We pray that our hearts would burn once again as we begin to see that the resurrected Jesus is with us. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to join me in praying a prayer that our brothers and sisters are going to be praying all across the world. I'm going to pray this top bit, and then at the end of it, I'm going to invite you to pray these three lines with me. Um, also, please don't pray like, come Holy Spirit and awaken your church and let your kingdom come. I really want you to pray this with boldness, with faith, and with desire and longing in your heart, that even in this moment, we may, may be able to experience the weight of God's presence once again. Is that cool? So pray it a little bit louder than you used to. Is that cool? I'm going to be on this, so I'll drown you out anyway. But please pray this with confidence and with boldness, longing for God's Holy Spirit to come amongst us. All right, we go for this? Great. Almighty God, who on the day of Pentecost sent your Holy Spirit to the apostles with the wind from heaven and in tongues of flame, filling them with joy and with boldness to preach the gospel by the power of the same Spirit, strengthen us, your church, to witness to your truth and to draw to everyone to the fire of your love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's say it together three times. Come, Holy Spirit, awaken us, your church, and let your kingdom come. Come, Holy Spirit, awaken us, your church, and let your kingdom come. Come, Holy Spirit, awaken us, your church, and let your kingdom come. Lord Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill your church once again, that you would come and rest amongst us, that you would empower us for all that you have invited us into as a church, as a community. Lord, let your kingdom come amongst us, not just for our sake, but for the sake of this region that we love, this place that we call home. May you fall with a greater sense of weight than ever before. May we sense the fresh wind of your spirit capturing us and releasing us out. Lord, I pray for the evangelists amongst us. I pray for all of us to step into evangelism, to be able to tell of the good news of Jesus. I pray that you would awaken us to the devotional rhythms that our hearts would burn because we're so aware of your presence. So Holy Spirit, come and fill us once again, we pray. And release us to be the church, daring and devoted, living a committed, obedient life full of pattern, but also, Lord Jesus, we long for a life that is full of your power. So come and lead us, fill us. And may, Lord Jesus, that start right now as we go home, as we talk with people, as we spend time with our families and with our friends, as we go into work tomorrow. May we be the kind of people that demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom and the power of you, Holy Spirit. Release us into that kind of life, we pray. And everybody said it. Amen.